Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Episode 40, Resurrection. Traumatized by their rabbi's crucifixion, Jesus' disciples endured maddening grief and cognitive dissonance as they tried to come to grips with what had happened. Into the midst of despair and helplessness, Jesus appeared. Although the first Christians were the worst believers in his resurrection, eventually they came to see him in the flesh and their doubts were assuaged as rejoicing replaced their mourning. The power of death is broken. He really is the Messiah. All is not lost. He is risen. If you would like to watch a video of this class or download the course notes, visit restitutio.org. Here's our final part to the Historical Jesus class, number 16, Resurrection. Once again, I can't cover all the details of all the resurrection appearances of Jesus. There are just too many. And... To do so would take more than the time we have here, but I'm going to pick a couple of them that I think are really spectacular. And again, if I don't pick the one that you think is spectacular, uh, it's not on purpose. It's just uh, nature of selection. Um, Jesus' arrest, trials, and crucifixion traumatized his followers. They were really disturbed. They did not grasp the meaning of his death nor did they have faith in his resurrection while he lay in the grave. They experienced cognitive dissonance, holding on the one hand that he was God's chosen one, while on the other they knew he was now dead. The Jewish leaders and Roman government publicly humiliated Jesus, making his death a mockery and spectacle. They reeled in grief, mourning the loss of their friend, their rabbi, their messiah. How could God let this happen? Think of it also from the perspective of the fact that these disciples deserted him. Right? Back to that garden scene, there was a bit of a skirmish there. Those of you who have read, I mean, I didn't mention all the details, but one of them took out the sword and cut off the ear, and then Jesus had to heal it, and they all left. It says in Mark that there was one man there, one of Jesus' disciples that was clothed in nothing but a linen sheet. And the the soldiers grabbed him, and in his terror, he fled naked. Says that in Mark. They had all ditched him. How were they doing while Jesus was in the grave? Not well. They're thinking, maybe if, you know how it is when when this happens, and and you're grieving, you're like, maybe I could have done this, or I should have done that. All humans go through that. And I'm sure they are going through it. What about Peter? I also didn't mention this, but Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. What's Peter going through? What about his mother? What is his mother feeling? She remembers the angel. That's how we started our class, right? She remembers the angel who said... You will have a son, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and he will rule over the throne of David, 
over the house of Jacob, Jacob and of his kingdom, there will be no end, right? This whole grandiose promise of the angel Gabriel to Mary before she was even pregnant, she's watched this whole life develop before her eyes. 30 plus years. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he, we know he was around 30 when he started his ministry. And that now he's dead. What kind of confusion is in her heart? And she's not relying on secondhand testimony. She was there. She saw it. So these people are in a dark place. What about Judas? Judas is so overcome with grief. He ends up committing suicide. They thought he was the one. But theologically, a dead Messiah is no Messiah. It's, an, it's a non-starter. And so people that study messianic movements, like I'm thinking of in particular N.T. Wright, a scholar, he says that typically when these messianic movements, when the leader of the movement dies, the followers have two choices, historically speaking. One, they go home, or two, they get another Messiah. <laughs> Jesus' disciples do neither. They're just shell-shocked. They're, they're, they're in a state of post-traumatic stress. How could God let this happen? I mean, you could just imagine the horror, the confusion, as, as their mind went back and forth between these two ideas. On the one hand, Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. Jesus raised the uh, son of the widow of Nain. Remember that? And yet, God let him die? What? Maybe we were fooled. Maybe he was a charlatan the whole time. Maybe he set the whole thing up and the, the boy in the coffin was really alive the whole time. But then how did he trick us with this one over here? No, that must have been real. And you can imagine just how their heads must have been swimming with conflicting ideas. Then on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And she saw that the stone was not blocking the the cave, the little hewn-out tomb. So she ran and got Peter and John. And Mary said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. There's no hint that she believes in resurrection at all here. Right? She's just mad that somebody moved the corpse. She's like, they moved him! That would be upsetting, Right? And so Peter and John start running. I think it's interesting how everyone's running. Running's a thing in our culture. I don't think it was a thing in the first century <laughs> that people just did for enjoyment or whatever. And so Mary runs to them, and she tells them, He's gone! We don't know where he is! And they're like, what? And so they run, Peter and John. And Peter runs, and John's a little faster. John gets there first, and he, he, he stops right outside the tomb, and, and he stoops over, and he looks in, and he sees the linen cloths. And he said, okay, the linen cloths are there. I don't see any, any people in here. There's no person. There's no Jesus. And then Peter catches up. He goes right into the tomb. And he sees the linen cloths. And he sees also the, the face cloth folded and by itself on the side. What does this mean? I don't know. They just go home. 
I mean, what else are you going to do? So they go home. They go back to the group. And Mary's left standing there. This is John chapter 20, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Uh, what do you think? <laughs> I'm at a tomb. My friend died. My Lord. And she said, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? <laughs> That's kind of funny. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, just one word, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. If somebody says, Do not cling to me, that means they're clinging to you. <laughs> she, she was probably squeezing him pretty tight right, right about then. He's alive! He's alive. And he says, Do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And I bet it was hard to get her to let go. But eventually she did, right? And she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord! And that he had said these things to her. And they were just like, okay, you've seen the Lord. <laughs> I have seen the Lord. I love this. I love that his first resurrection appearance was not to Tiberius Caesar on his throne in Rome. That it was not to Pontius Pilate in the Praetorium in Jerusalem. That it was not to Joseph Caiaphas in his high priestly palace or sitting at the head of the council of the Sanhedrin. I love that Jesus didn't even appear to Peter or James or John first. That it was this young peasant woman, maybe not even young, I don't know how old she was, but this faithful, godly woman, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Look, if you have one demon, you've got a problem. She had seven. I don't know what kind of reputation she had in the town, but Jesus chose her first. Out of all the millions of people alive in that time, it was to Mary Magdalene that he appeared first. It reminds me and it, she wasn't the only woman that followed Jesus. We know from Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, that there were several women, in addition to the 12 disciples and, and these others, that actually had supported the ministry of Jesus. The, the wife of Herod's chief steward, a woman named um, Joanna and Susanna, were also among the followers of Jesus who were women. And Jesus chose her. But it reminds me of the time when God first wanted to announce that he had a son, that his son was born. Who did he pick for that? 
Some no-name shepherds. You don't even know what their names were. Neither do I. They're, they're literally no-name shepherds. That's who we picked. Just some faithful people out in the field hanging out with the sheep. I just love that about how God does things. And I love that Christ does this as well. That He picks Mary Magdalene. And He announces it to her. And He goes and He says... And, oh, and here's the other thing that you notice about all the resurrection appearances. The first Christians are the worst believers in the world. They, they are so bad. You know, nobody believes. Right? She stares at Him and she doesn't believe. And then He says her name. Oh, I believe! Right? And then she goes and tells him, and they all just, what? What are you talking about? Right? Now that, now that the Sabbath's over, some of them are even going home. They're going home. Jesus is raised, and they're going home. A couple of them said that they heard the report of the women, and it sounded like an idle tale. Two men, we have the name of one of them, a guy named Cleopas, and his friend were on a journey to seven miles away to the village of Emmaus. And they were talking as they went, and suddenly a stranger, a fellow traveler, walked up next to them and spent some time talking with them. It was Jesus. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We read this in Luke 24, 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? That's a normal thing to ask somebody. What are you talking about? What's going on here? What's the buzz? What's the news? And they, they stood still looking sad. Imagine that. He said, what are you guys talking about? And they, they, just, they just stopped walking. They just have this sad look on their face. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. Look at that. They call him a prophet. So they're, they're, they're not thinking of him as Messiah. They're thinking of him as a prophet. So even though he, he had died and he, he obviously wasn't the Messiah, they still recognize him as a prophet who was mighty in deed, that's like the healing and the different acts of Christ, and then in word, his teachings, right? And let me tell you something, with no resurrection, this is the best you get out of Jesus. This is the best you get. The worst is he's an imposter, he's a false messiah, and he deserved to die. The best is he's a prophet, and they killed him, and he's a martyr, and it's really sad. That's the best. And that's, that's what they concluded. And they go, they go on to say, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hopes, that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's what we wanted. We wanted him to redeem our nation, to buy us back, to set us free, to rule over us, to be the Messiah. We hoped he was the Messiah, but he's just a prophet, and now he's dead. Yes, and besides this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just 
as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they, they give Jesus their own interpretation on everything here. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, I feel like at this point Jesus is like busting. Like he's just like can't hold it in anymore. Like, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the one who redeems Israel, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus makes a biblical argument. He says, out of all the different things you just said there, the thing that bothers me the most is that you're interpreting the Bible wrongly. <laughs> the way you should interpret the Bible is that it predicts the suffering and then the glory. And it says that he, he began with Moses and all the prophets. That's another way of saying the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I bet he went to Isaiah 52 and 53 where it talks about how the suffering servant would suffer the penalty for, on behalf of the people to whom the stroke was due. And I bet he went to Psalm 22, which had all these statements that correlated with his actual crucifixion experience. Right? These things are written hundreds, centuries, hundreds of years before Christ. These things are written in their book. And Jesus is like, look, it says it right here. Look, it says it right here. He's still a rabbi. That didn't change. He's still a rabbi. He's still teaching them. What does a rabbi teach? How to predict the weather? No, he teaches the Bible. And so he's still teaching it to them. And then what happened? Well, they got to Emmaus. Jesus talked so long. I mean, it's a seven-mile walk. But he talked so long that they got to where they were going. And they said, well, this is us. We're going to, we, we, we stop here. And Jesus says, ah, I'm going to keep going. He's going to keep walking. And they say, oh, no, 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 stay with us. Stay. And they urged him, stay with us. And so they came in and they sat at table and he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And suddenly they recognized Jesus. And just in that moment when they recognized Jesus, he vanished out of their sight. <laughs> and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn while he shared with us the scriptures? Did not our hearts burn within us? I don't think they got much of the way through that meal because they went right back to Jerusalem and I bet they went a little faster than the walk away. There might have been some more running going on right here. And they got all the way back and they found... Everybody else, all the other Jesus people, the disciples, the women, the other interested parties, his mother, and, and they're all gathered together, and, and they say, we've seen the Lord! <laughs> and, and they're like, yeah, well, he appeared to Peter too. And there's like, well, Mary Magdalene's like, well, I told you so. And Peter's like, yeah, I saw him. And these guys are like, he told us everything about the scriptures. You wouldn't believe how this all fits together. And they're, they're all, there's this buzz in the room. They're all talking. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, there he is, standing right in front of them. And they're all just shocked. They're in unbelief. I mean, the first Christians are the worst believers. But they're in unbelief. They're not, they're not making it up. Right? They're just, they're just like, hold on. 
And Jesus, Jesus sees it. He sees that they're like, look, give, give him that look like, are you really here? <laughs> you know? And he says to them, guys, it's me. Look at my arms. Look at my feet. And he says, do you have any food? And until he eats a piece of fish, they won't believe it's him. Must have been something about how he ate a piece of fish. They're, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. <laughs> and he ate the piece of fish, and it was Jesus. And, and you just can imagine the, 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 the mental fireworks, the emotional explosion of joy, confusion. Like, you're alive? How did that work? You were dead. You're not in the tomb. Now, you're, Jesus, explain. Can you teach us this one? What is this? <laughs> and the rejoicing, and they, they probably all embraced him. And there are several other resurrection appearances in the Gospels. And also in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a whole list of resurrection appearances. But the real question is, other than the historical question, was he raised from the dead, which, to which I, I answer resoundingly, yes. Uh, the, the real question is, what does this mean? What does it mean? It's a really strange of, uh, series of events. I mean, look, if God can raise him from the dead, why let him die in the first place? Why not just rescue him a little earlier so he doesn't die? What's the point in letting him die and then raising him from the dead? It's a very strange thing. And so the question becomes not why did he die, but why did God let him die? Why did he have to die? Yeah, as opposed to why did he die? Why did he have to die? Right? And of course, Jesus has already primed them with the answer from the Last Supper. Right? And that answer is going to take time to develop in their soul and for God to work through the Spirit to help them to understand the full implications of it. But it, I could tell you one thing. It had to do with sin. It had to do with our sin. It had to do with fulfilling the law. It had to do with ushering in the new covenant in His blood. It had to do with setting for us an example that we should follow in His steps. You know, there, it had to do with freeing us to live righteously. You know, there's a lot of different aspects to that question, and that's all wrapped up in what does the resurrection mean. But I'll tell you what it meant right in that very moment, without any theologizing, it meant that that symbol of the cross as Caesar's power to rule the world with brutality and domination has just been flipped upside down. It's just been undone. And that cross comes to mean God's symbol of love in giving His own Son who voluntarily died for our sin. Because that's what the cross means today, doesn't it? The cross used to mean you mess with Caesar and this is what happens to you. And now it means God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How did that happen? How do you take a symbol like that and turn it into salvation? A huge event the size of resurrection. That's the only explanation for it. And suddenly, everything is changed. The world is no longer the same. And the resurrection proves that Jesus is truly God's anointed one, His agent, His Messiah. 
because God's vindicated him. The, everyone else killed him. They, they, they said, he's a false Messiah. That's why we killed him. And God raised him from the dead and says, he's not false, he's true. He set his seal upon him by raising him from the dead, proving to everyone that he's the Messiah. And why is resurrection associated with Messiah? You go back to the Hebrew Bible. You look up resurrection. You look at the different times that it mentions resurrection, like Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones, or Daniel 12.2, or Isaiah 25. And you'll see that in these scriptures, or Isaiah 26, that mention resurrection, it's always an event associated with the age to come. It's always an event associated with the kingdom. And that is Jesus. He is the man associated with the age to come. He is the man associated with the kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom. And that's what Messiah means. So resurrection points to his Messiahship. And it teaches us something else, too, by the way. Something that's very important. That death is not the end. That just because we die doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Right? And it's not like this is, you know, Socrates pontificating. Oh, I think death is no more than the separation of the soul from the body. He just made that up. I know everybody believes that, but he just made that up. What the Bible teaches is that death is the enemy, and it's the last enemy to be destroyed, and that dead, the dead are asleep until that day when Jesus comes on the last day to awaken them with his voice. He says, many of those who are sleeping in the tombs will hear his voice and arise. And so resurrection proves that in Christ, God has already broken the power of death. He's broken the power of death, and that's good news for us. Is that good news for you? That's good news for me. And it's good news for our loved ones who have already died before us. And so the story, of course, doesn't end there. Jesus' earthly ministry doesn't end with the resurrection. It ends with his ascension. He spent several more weeks with his disciples and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God according to Acts 1.3. And he told them to stay in Jerusalem and he said, wait here in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we know as the day of Pentecost. Right? And they asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, is this the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this it? And this is what Jesus replied. He said to them, Acts 1.7, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, I bet you'd be gazing into heaven too. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who has taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The first thing they say about Jesus when he departs is that he's coming back. <laughs> That's the first thing anyone says. They're standing there like, are you seeing this, Peter? I'm seeing it. He's going up. Is he going to come back down? Where's he going? Right? I mean, they, they didn't already read the scripture. They're living it. And those two men dressed in white say, 
he's, he's coming back. <laughs> he's coming back. He's going to come back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And that is the same, the same hope that we are holding to to this day. And what did he say before he left, by the way? What did he say to them? He said, you are going to be my witnesses. His last words are, you are my witnesses. And of course, I realize that Jesus is still alive and he's still the head of his church and he has a heavenly ministry where he's involved in things that are going on. But he also expects us to do something too. (laughs) He expects us to be his witnesses. It falls to us to share the gospel with others, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them what Jesus said. The question is, what will you do? You know, we've been looking at Jesus now for eight weeks, nine weeks, took a week off. The question is, what will you do with what you've learned here? I mean, I, what, what I've shared with you, I think, will help you if you read the Gospels now. It'll help you to even get more out of it than you did before. But there's also the practical side of it that this is not just information to be learned and it's not just a teaching to be followed in our own lives, but it's also good news to be shared with other people. And so, will you share this gospel with others, the gospel of the kingdom, the cross, and the resurrection? How Jesus died for our sins, how God raised him from the dead, proving he's the Messiah, and how he's coming back to establish God's kingdom? Will you keep it to yourself like the man who buried his talent? Remember that guy? Will you commit to follow Jesus? Will you rejoice when he returns or flee from him in dread? Those are the two options. It says, when they see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, all the people will mourn. Well, not his followers. We're going to be rejoicing, (laughs) wearing party hats. That's right. I pray you would believe in his death for your sins, that God raised him from the dead, that he will come back to establish God's kingdom here on earth. And in the meantime, let's follow him, come what may. I mean, he's worthy. Let's come to Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor. This is Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember... The truth has nothing to fear.